Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Right. Very good. You guys can be seated. So good. So good. Pastor Dallas, I'm so glad you showed up tonight. It's so good. I'm honored that, that, that you would be here with your presence. If Pastor Daryl Dorley's here, I'd honor him as well. Pastor Daryl Dorley from Avenue Heights Church of Christ was the first person to bring me to Bundaberg and introduce me to Dallas and Errol and the rest of the guys here. And um, man, it's so good. And I'm humbled to be in the presence of, of Al Fury, who, who, who honestly is a legend. He's a le- like, I'm being dead serious here. He's, he's forgotten. It's, it's, it's inspiring to me. To be uh, to to know someone who, quite frankly, has forgotten more about what he's done for God than I'll do, and um, he's he's a brave person who um, is worthy of respect and honor, and um, I have a lot to learn from him. And so um, and so uh, tonight, like uh, afterwards, as Pastor Earl said, we do have a resource table set up. Um, only thing I would ask is that um, if you don't want anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time I'm through. If you know you want something, if you would do so in the first 10 minutes, the reason is, is I got to pack it up and um, we're going to Gainda tomorrow and then King Arroy and then Chinchilla and then up through Tulum. I've always, um, my whole life, I've honored the rural churches in Australia um, because um, Australia is, the heart and soul of Australia is in rural towns. And so, um, and so we've, I've always said, if you'll play ball with the schedule, um, I'd love to, uh, to come do that. And so we're going to go, I'm going to take the, instead of driving straight back to Brisbane, I'm going to take the interior road and stop at all those towns and, and try to bless those places. But so I have to pack that up, right? So, um, so if you come out there quickly, and as always, we do give it away to the poor and the afflicted, but tonight I want to do something extra, um, and we're going to give some of that profit to, uh, to Pastor Al when he goes back to Peru to make sure he's starting well when he goes back there. We want to be very generous. Um, to, to someone who's given his life for things like that. And don't, don't fret. I'm not going to take anything from the kids, all right? I, I don't know if you figured this out. I, I, give them, I, I give them what we said, whether you buy or not. And if you buy more, we give them more. But I'm not going to say, you got to wait to see if there's people in Bundaberg buy anything, if, see if you're going to eat this week. Not going to do that, all right? So, um, so you could uh, pick some things up out there very quickly. So, um, Jonah chapter 4, if you're like following the actual Bible. Um, if not, I've made slides. And so I want to ask questions tonight about what kind of people and what kind of church we're becoming. Now, I do not expect you to remember anything I said in November, okay? So please don't feel guilty. But I was here, I was here in November, and I talked about the kind of church we're trying to build. And essentially what we talked about is, is that we want to be a well-based place and not a fence-based place, a place that fulfills Scripture, not just chooses to be right about one verse. We want to we focus on who is thirsty not who is worthy. We want to focus more on loving instead. Of, we want to focus less on sinning less and more on loving more. We want to focus more on um, everything. Nothing has to be hidden instead of everything has to be fixed. And so we, we talked about that. We used Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and once again, I don't expect you to remember, I'm not going to re-preach it tonight. But to be that kind of place, to be a well-based place instead of a fence-based place requires us to ask a question underneath that question. And that is, what kind of thing are we going to prioritize? And so when we look at the Bible, um, we want to look at two questions at least. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened, all right? And so I want to look at this really interesting story um, that's simply called Jonah. And um, in Jewish culture, uh, Jonah is in the scripture to show us uh, two things. One, about how far and wide and big the love of God is for people even not like us. And two, um, Jonah is the example of what not to be. Um, Jonah is the example of what not to do, 
Uh, Jonah is the example of how God is persistent to be in your story, even if you're being sort of a jerk and doing the exact opposite thing uh, you're supposed to be doing. So because I'm going to read the end of the book, I'm going to take two minutes and summarize the story of Jonah. I will do it well, and then we're going to talk about some observations and then read the very end of the book. So here's the basics of Jonah. There's a guy named Jonah. He's the son of Amittai. Um, he was called by God uh, to go speak to Nineveh. Now quickly about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was run by a series of megalomaniacs, namely a guy named Tiglath-Pileser uh, was one of them, which honestly, you got to feel for Tiglath-Pileser. Would you agree with me? If your mom named you Tiglath-Pileser, you'd sort of have some issues yourself. And so um, Tiglath-Pileser was a particular maniac. The the, the, Nineveh, the Ninevites, uh, particularly the Assyrian Empire, they had mastered the art of how to make people um, submit to their rule. Uh, namely, they had mastered the art of how to skin people alive and keep them alive. As an example, this is what happens when you mess with us. Specifically, they had done lots of research on human subjects on where and how to cut one's face at just the right depth so you could peel someone's face off and yet they still somehow didn't die. So Tiglath-Pileser made an art of filleting people, um, namely pulling their face off. There's one story from Assyrian history about a farmer in a rural area of the Assyrian Empire and rumor got around that he was uh, spreading bad rumors about the leadership of the empire. And so they showed up and they put his six kids to death. Uh, But him they didn't put to death. They put his eyes out, cut his ears off, and cut his nose off and left him alive as an example. This is what happens if you ever speak against us. So God calls Jonah to go speak to them. Jonah is fairly reasonable and says, no, I'm not going to go there. That's not going to do that. I'm not, I'm partial to keeping my skin um, intact. So Jonah actually does the exact opposite things. And he runs to a place called Joppa and then boards a boat to Tarshish. And then a storm comes up and, and then some weird things start happening. Like pagan sailors actually have a higher view of human life than God's prophet. It's sort of a weird sort of thing. They're like, Jonah, there's a storm. He's like, just throw me overboard. They're like, what? You're a human being. We're not going to throw you overboard. You matter. And so they throw the cargo overboard. In other words, they sacrifice their prophet for the good of another human being. So in the story, pagan people are actually actually behaving in a way that is more conducive with the way God would want us behaving than the prophet is. And so finally they acquiesce and they throw Jonah overboard. Then the story gets really weird. Instead of just leaving him to drown, God provides this fish. This fish comes by and saves Jonah from drowning. And Jonah ends up in the belly of the fish. And then then he lets us in on what he did in the belly of the fish, which is a little bit strange because in Jonah chapter two, he says, while I was in the belly of the fish, this is what I did. Um, I prayed 10 perfectly worded prayers, straight quotes from the book of Psalms, which I think we could all agree is like, come on, Bo, you're leaving a little bit out, right? Like you're so spiritual that being swallowed by a fish, you thought 10 perfect prayers from the book of Psalms. Okie dokie. But anyway, so God ends up rescuing Jonah from the drowning. And then he, he tells the fish to throw up. The, the fish throws up, ironically, right by the shore where he needed to hit the road to go to Nineveh. He shows up in Nineveh, and he finally acquiesces to preach to Nineveh. He shows up in Nineveh, and he frankly preaches the worst sermon ever. It's eight words in English. It's only five words in Hebrew. He preached a five-word sermon. Here was his sermon. Forty days from now, you're going to be destroyed. See you later. Worst sermon ever, right? It backfires, and the whole thing works. These people repent. It says even the animals fasted. It's just a strange sort of story. But Jonah gets upset that it worked. No preacher in the history of the world wants their sermons not to work. Jonah did not like that it worked. And he goes out and he pouts because 
it worked. So God ends up providing this plant and he essentially confronts Jonah on why are you upset because it works? And Jonah's like, this is where he lets you in on the whole thing. He actually wasn't scared of being skinned alive. He was scared that God was gonna be nice to people he didn't like. And he says, I knew it. I knew you were a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. I knew you were gonna be nice to the Ninevites. That's why I wanted nothing to do with it. So Jonah has to learn a lesson that God is not nearly as interested in getting his enemies as he is. And God is not nearly as interested in getting you as your enemies are. That's sort of the story, which leads me to a few observations before we read the passage. If you could bring the first slide up for me. When we run from God, we run to the strangest places. Like when we, when God, we talked a lot over the weekend about consent. And when God humbly and lovingly consents and then waits for our mutual consent, when we non-consent, we often end up in strange places. Sometimes you could call it hell on earth. Sometimes you could at very least, sometimes you call it the belly of fish. Sometimes you call it a storm in the middle of the thing. None of that was necessary. And none of that was God getting Jonah. I have heard preachers go, apply this story by going, if you don't do what God says, God's gonna send a fish to swallow you. That is not, the as if God's angry in the story, the fish is not God's judgment. The fish, it's God's salvation. The guy's going to drown, right? In other words, and we talked a bit about wrath over the weekend. That wrath is not the active anger of God. Wrath is a metaphor for being handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. When God consents and we non-consent, we end up in strange places. We also find out that God is generous with his grace. That, that, that a guy that literally never obeyed, the only time he obeys in the whole story, it's sort of this resistant acquiescence. You want me to preach? Fine, I'll preach the worst sermon ever. 40 days from now, you're gonna be destroyed. There, I did it, right? It's sort of weird, but God is generous with his grace. We also find out in this story that God wants to get us back without paying us back. And that's two different things. That nothing in the story or in the God revealed in Christ is punitive. That the prodigal son is a great example about the nature of the God revealed in Christ. That even though the person non-consented and ruined their lives, the father is not looking for payback. He's looking to get us back without making us pay him back. And that's two different things. Also, what we learn is that great moves of God start with a genuine revelation of the love of God for us and other people. Uh, as far as I know... Uh, it's not the only one, but this is a very early record of a pretty big revival in a pagan city. And it happened on a reluctant, horrendous sermon. In other words, sometimes God just does what he does regardless of our ineptitude. You're caught up with the story. This is Jonah chapter four. Next slide. So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter. And he sat in its shade and watch what he's doing. And he waited to see what would happen to the city. He wants God to destroy these people. This is a guy who has done nothing but non-consent and rebel. And God has been nice to him. And he can't be inspired by that to celebrate the mercy of God for people he deems wicked. He is failing to do this. And if we don't hear anything else tonight, because I know there are people who can only listen to the first six minutes of a sermon. So hear this now, right? If, if the gospel is nothing else, we should be so inspired by God never treating us as we deserve, but treating us as we are worth, that we are at least inspired 
desire to treat others the same, to never treat people as they deserve, but always treat people as they are worth. Jonah cannot do that, right? Then the Lord provided a, a vine and made it grow so, so over Jonah to give his shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. I see a lot of people taking notes. I'm glad you're doing that. I want you to note he was very happy about the vine. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But at the next day, God provided a worm which chewed through the vine so that it withered. And the sun rose, and God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So Jonah's now suicidal in this sort of one day of problem. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? By the way, this, story is, this question is rhetorical, right? Hey, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? The answer should be actually no. But Jonah still doesn't get it. And he said, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Now, that's pretty angry, right? Next slide. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, you actually had nothing to do with it. Sprang up overnight, then died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's the end of the book of Jonah. Which is frankly a horrible way to end a piece of literature, isn't it? with a question. It's almost like whoever wrote Jonah is leaving us to wrestle with application more than telling us what happened. This is an amazing story that I want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? Two, more importantly, what's happening in us right now because of what happened? And what does this have to tell us about the kind of people we're, urge, we're, we're looking to become? And how is this actually the precursor of whether we'll be a well-based place or a fence-based place? Next slide. Let's see where this takes us. Uh, one, we can run from God, but we can't outrun him. It seems like no, no matter how far we run away from God, God is always out in front of us, confronting us with his grace, confronting us with his love, confronting us with his forgiveness, confronting us with his salvation. Number two, God wants to get us back without paying us back. And I also think that one of the main points we can learn from this story, and this is so critical for church people, and that is this. It is possible to surrender to God's moral will for our lives and still miss God's redemptive plan for the whole world. It is possible to go, God, I mutually consent to your will for my life and still somehow miss the point that God is about them. It is possible to be humble before God and mutually consent, but when you look at how you treat other people, there's a disconnect between your walk with God and your harshness with others. In this story, you see a guy reluctantly surrendering to God's moral will for his life. Hey, you want me to go to Nineveh? Fine, I'll go to Nineveh. But what we find out that just the surrendering to the moral will of God does not necessarily equate to seeing people how God sees them in the place you're called to go, right? In other words, it's possible to say, I feel God has called me to be a missionary to Myanmar, right? It's possible to do that, but then when you get to Myanmar, you find it difficult to find the love in your heart that would be necessary to be a part of the change 
in Myanmar. It's possible to say, hey, I surrender to God's moral will for my life as I live in Bundaberg, but yet when we live our life in Bundaberg, fail to connect the dots that my surrender to God here has to equate to love for people there. This is what it looks like in the church world. Hey, I'm a fully devoted follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. I want to see the world the way Jesus sees the world, but then when I actually look at how we treat waitresses and waiters and people who cut us off in traffic, when I look at how we treat our husbands when they leave their underwear on the floor for the 80,000th time, when I look at how we treat our wives who do stuff that disappoint us, there's an obvious disconnect between my surrender to God's moral will for my life and how that is then translated to how I see other people, particularly people not like me. This is what Jonah's wrestling with. Jonah is wrestling with, isn't it enough to do what you asked me to do? And the clear and resounding answer in this story is, no, there's been no heart transformation about the love of God for others. This is the problem when Christians say, I'm all about Jesus, man. I'm just all about Jesus. Okay, I'm glad, but Jesus is all about others. And you can't be all about Jesus and then anti-others and expect not to live through the tension of that disconnect. Let's see where that takes us. Next slide. So this is a story about Jesus. It's a strange story about his encounter with a blind man named Bartimaeus with followers of Jesus. Let's see what happened and then ask what happened to me right now because of it. Then they came to Jericho, and it's Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd. Just by the way, historically, Jericho was the rich people place, okay? This was like a resort town, right? Jericho was where the, the um, Roman sympathizers would have garrisoned themselves and become rich off the excessive taxation of other people, all right? So there, in other words, a lot of rich people around. Then they came to Jericho. It's Jesus with his disciples. Notice the word disciples. These are people who have submitted their lives to following Jesus, right? Because at Heritage Christian Church, we are not called to be people who believe in Jesus. We are called to connect to Christ to allow him to fundamentally shape the way we see the whole world. And that is two different things. So these people are not the outsiders. They're not the unsaved. They're not whatever words you want to use. These are disciples of Jesus. And watch what happens. Together with a large crowd, and they were leaving the city. A blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, that's a whole other story for another time, have mercy on me. Now watch what happens with the disciples of Christ. But many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. In other words, the disciples of Jesus are shushing the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus. In other words, they're like, beggar, shut up. You're interrupting Christ. Now watch what happens. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. In other words, don't you get it? You're all about me, but I'm all about him. I'm all about ministering to the marginalized, to the poor, the afflicted, to the people who can do nothing in return for us. What you have in this story is people who have submitted to God's moral will for their life and 
fully and authentically and intentionally and with all of their heart, pursuing Jesus with everything they had. But at this point in the story, they've still missed the point and they're willing to step over the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus and somehow think that's a spiritual way to go. The whole New Testament has these themes like in 1 John. 1 John says, if you see a need and you have the ability to meet the need and you purposely turn your back on that need, how can God how can God's love be in the middle of that? You can't, you, in other words, for John and Peter and James and Paul, you cannot disconnect our love and pursuit of Jesus with his love and pursuit of other people. You can't do it. A couple of observations about this. Next slide. Are we overlooking the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? In other words, have we accidentally, no person would do this intentionally, but it requires us to take a hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves this question. Have I lost sight of the bigger point because I've been so focused on my individual walk with God? So in my, in which we celebrate. So my individual mutual consent and participation with what God is up to in the world. But if I'm honest, I have lost sight. And if I'm honest, I've overlooked the things Jesus honors in my own pursuit of Jesus. In this story, they're overlooking the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus. In other words, are we pursuing God's will for us while ignoring his will for the rest of the world? Because maybe pursuing Jesus and loving our world is the same thing. And you cannot separate the two. A couple of, let's put some language around this because thoughts like this without enough language is very frustrating. Next slide. Let's, let's say it. Let's say it this way. How does the book of Jonah end? It's actually, it's actually a weird ending. If, if, if you're a storyteller at all, is it ever good story to end with a question? Not really, but it's a good sermon. It's a good parable. It's a good sort of um, inspiring spiritual literature. Hey, hey, should I not be? Hey, you care about your plant. I care about those people. There's 120,000 people in there, and I realize you think they're evil, but shouldn't I be concerned about them just because they're people and not because of what they've done? Shouldn't I? What is your problem? Don't you get it? What is the first and only description of Jonah being happy? I told you to make note of that 15 minutes ago probably, right? It says he was very happy about his plant. <laughs> Think through the book of Jonah. How many opportunities does Jonah have to be happy? A lot. And God called me to do something really important and I was happy. Nope. And I disobeyed and ran, and God let me get away with it. Not only let me get away with it, he provided ways along the way for me not to die. And I was happy about God's grace. Nope. And a big storm came up, and we survived it. Nope. And a big storm came up, and pagan sailors were willing to sacrifice their profit at the expense of my life, and they honored me instead of their own money. And I was happy about that. Nope. And they ended up throwing me overboard anyway. And instead of drowning in the open ocean, God provided a fish to save my sorry butt from drowning. And in there, I was like really happy about that. Nope. And instead of being in there forever, that fish threw up. And he didn't just throw up in the middle of the ocean. He threw up on land where I could continue to live. I was really happy about that. Nope. And I went to the capital city and I preached against people who have a habit of filleting people alive. And they let me keep my skin intact. And I was very happy about that. 
Nope. And I preached the worst sermon ever. 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. And it worked. And I was very happy that my sermon worked. Nope. Everything he could be happy about. And the one time it says he was happy was he was sitting in his own comfort looking for God to destroy people he didn't like. He's like, now this is living. (laughs) What the heck? Like, mate, this is someone who does not get it. And what what is he doing when he's described as happy? He's sitting in his own comfort and can't wait for God to destroy people he thinks is evil. Boy, this is really, really problematic. Next slide. God says, you care about a plant. I care about people. You care about your plant. I care about people. And here's what's so confronting about the plant. The plant was given to him by God. In other words, is there anything wrong with the plant? No. And that's the problem, right? We tend to organize our life around confronting wrong and embracing right. That's how, that's our default button. And what's funny about that to me is that's the earliest lie ever recorded in the scripture. And we should remember it because evidently it was told by a talking snake. Listen, when a talking snake tells a lie, that is the author's clear picture to pay attention to this lie. It's a big one. It was told by a talking snake. And that is the best life you can have is found in perfectly navigating what is right and what is wrong. That's just not true. Because there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise. They're not useful. They're not profitable. And there's a lot of things that are right that are just less important than more important things. The issue is almost never right and wrong. It's wise or unwise, useful or unuseful, profitable or unprofitable, or I'll say it how ancient rabbis said it, light or heavy. It's not right or wrong, it's just a lighter thing versus a heavier thing. In this story, is there anything wrong with the plant? No, it was given him by God and it's serving a purpose. It's providing shade for his head in the heat, right? This is a good thing. The problem with the plant is not the plant. The problem is, is that Jonah fell in love with the plant and lost sight of the people. And that is really, really problematic. You say, well, okay, it's, it's 2021 in Bundaberg. What is, what, what is that? Well, it could be anything. Is there anything wrong with our stuff? No. Think about the things in our life that give us comfort. And we have more things that give us comfort now than ever before. I would say almost everybody in here lives with air conditioning somewhere in their house, particularly their bedroom, so that in the winter you have heat and in the summer you have cool. That is really, really awesome, hey. I would say most everybody in here lives with high-speed internet with infinite amount of programs to watch on the tip of your thumb. That is awesome. I'm 45. I'm not that old, but I still remember having to wait till four till my show came on. You don't have to wait anymore. And if you're still waiting for your show to come on, it's 2021, you don't have to do that anymore, right? Just talk to anybody under the age of 20. They'll set it up for you. They're nice people, right? Lots of things that give us comfort. I have air-conditioned car. I drive on paved roads. 
I have stores that prepackage food for me. I have clean water in my tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free or at least very, very affordable. This is which is one of the this is the greatest time ever to be alive in the history of planet Earth. This is just an amazing there's literally nothing worse today than 400 years ago other than pollution, right? This is just an amazing thing. If you're here today and you're black, Life's better today than it was in 1950 or 1850 or 1550. If you're a woman, it's much better, right? Would you rather be a woman today or 1950? Don't think too hard about that. It's really obvious you'd rather be a woman today or 1850 or 1550. We have lots of things that give us comfort. We have better human rights. We have all these things that are absolutely awesome. And here's the temptation. You hear a sermon like this and we start feeling guilty about our plants and we actually resist the plants. That's not the point of the sermon at all. The point of the sermon is to have the grace to enjoy your plant without ever, ever, ever losing sight that it's all about the people. It's all about them. Essentially, God says, Jonah, you're happy when your plant lives and you're angry when, it's, when it dies. Like angry enough to die, actually. You're happy when your plant lives and you're angry when it dies. I'm happy when people live and I'm angry when people die. Essentially, God says to Jonah, Jonah, how you feel about your plant is how I feel about people. The the, the same way you feel about this plant, I feel about that 120,000 people out there. Which leads me to this observation about where we are in this bubble called Australia. We should be thankful every day for this bubble called Australia without ever feeling guilty about it for one second. However, if we're ever, ever, ever angry about when our bubble gets violated at the expense of God's love for the other person, we have missed the entire point. Let's bring it down to this specific church or whatever church you call home in Bundaberg, because I realize there's some other churches here. But let's talk about our Bundaberg churches, right? For 17 years, I've been coming to Bundaberg, and I've been very impressed with the amount of camaraderie between the Bundaberg communities of Christ around the area. And, And I think we should celebrate that. You live in a great town. You live in a town without traffic jams. Come on. You live in a town with three world-class golf courses. Come on. You are rural enough to not have the congestion, but you're urban enough to not miss out on most anything you'd ever want to do. This is Bundaberg, man. You have the same comforts as everybody else. You come into churches with proper lights and sound and equipment and talented people. Not everybody has that. And here's the thing. There's a way that we can get very happy about the plants and lose sight that actually, as much as we are about creating meaningful experiences with God in here, the action has to be out there, that we never lose sight of those people. See, the thing with the plant is it's not bad. But what the story is, is that it's temporary. Plants aren't wrong. They're just temporary. People are permanent. What God is challenging Jonah to do is not just surrender to his moral will for his life, but to keep in mind the tension, not between the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, but the temporary and the permanent.
which leads me to this question. If you're honest, and I do not know the answer, this is for you to wrestle with. If we're honest, does our life show a focus and an obsession on the temporary or a focus and an obsession on the permanent? Because to be a well-based place instead of a fence-based place, we have to first wrestle with, are we going to be obsessed with the temporary or are we going to be obsessed with the permanent? There's lots of temporary things that are good. Doctrine. Doctrines are good, but by and large, they're temporary. Other than Jesus is the Christ, he was crucified, the resurrection's true. That's the, those are the ones that have stood the test of time. Jesus is the Christ, he was crucified, the resurrection's true. Almost everything else has been discussed and debated and come and went and been reimagined and, and talked about. Doctrines come, doctrines go, people stay. God bless the people. This is why the New Testament calls us to discuss doctrine, but defend love at all cost. Remember in 1 John, he says, he says, you can know you belong to Christ by keeping his command. The, the word keep there does not mean to obey the commands. He actually goes to great lengths to say, anybody that claims to obey the commands, they're like, they're nonsensical. That, that, the truth's not in them. The word keep is an ancient Greek word that's called a castle keep. It was the place of last stand. It, we use it today in... Um, we use it today in uh, uh, sports. We say a goalkeeper. A goalkeeper's job is not to, to obey the goal. It's to protect the goal. Or we use it in childcare. We say, please keep my child. I'll be right back. That doesn't mean obey the two-year-old. That means protect the two-year-old, right? Same, same exact word. And then he says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. In other words, we are meant to discuss doctrine, fine, but defend love with everything we have. Why? Because doctrines come, doctrines go, people stay. God bless the people. Music preference comes. Music preference goes. People stay. God bless the people. Programs come. Programs go. There are things, there are things we did in church 25 years ago we wouldn't think to do today program-wise. Programs come. Programs go. People stay. God bless the people. The temptation is the thing that ru could ruin the church of Jesus Christ is normally not overt sin. It's not that tempting. It's to focus on the temporary at the expense of the permanent, to focus on the light at the expense of the heavy. God's like, Jonah, what are you doing? You're angry about a plant? I'm angry when people die. You're happy when plants live? I'm happy when people live. How you feel about your plant that's how I feel about people. Next slide. So how do we wrestle with this? Because great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. If your only thought about a sermon is, oh, I agree with that, so, or I hate that, I disagree with it, also so. Sermons are meant to make us think and wrestle and, and, and apply something for tomorrow. So let's ask a few questions. How do we think about our enemies? That's one of the questions these stories are asking us. How someone has treated us unjustly. How do we, how do we think about them? Do we, do we sit in our temporary comfort hoping God destroys them? Or, or, do we find, or can we look at the figure of Christ on the cross and go, how can a man be treated that unjustly and still love and forgive? Because Jesus is not someone to believe in. Jesus is, is there to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. And we're supposed to look at that figure of Christ on the cross and go, he can do it, therefore I should do it. How do we treat and think about our enemies? Are we still us and them thinkers? Or can we see the spirit of the, Christ, of the risen Christ filling everything in every way? 
According to Ephesians 1, it says the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In other words, you never ever are the one who brought Jesus to whatever you're doing. Jesus was there all along and you were there to participate with what Jesus is doing and help people name it. Otherwise, we become us and them thinkers. Are we acting for the temporary pursuit or for the permanent progress? Are we focused on the light or on the heavy? On the temporary or on the permanent? Let's, let's say it this way. I think we should wrestle with this question. Is there any place that we've forgotten our fish? Like, is there any place where God asked us to do something, consented in love, and we either rebelliously or because of lack of confidence or fear or for whatever reason, we non-consented to God's consent. And we found ourselves at a strange place where we were drowning and could die. And then we looked around and we realized that even in our rebellion, God was faithful to provide the fish. Because if we ever forget our fish story, we run the risk of forgetting God might be in the middle of their fish story and hoping God destroys people who aren't exactly where we are. That would be terrible. You know, every year, every year in Israel, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Israelites everywhere proclaim in a loud voice, my father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. And the idea is, is that if God had not interjected himself into my story, I would still be a homeless refugee slave. But because God interjected himself into my story, I'm no longer a homeless refugee slave. And the reason they do that is they realize if we ever lose sight of where we would be had God not interjected himself into our story, we'll lose sight of our responsibility to play a part in their story. Is there any place we need to remember our fish? And go, you know what? I was sort of a jerk. I was a dipstick. I was rebellious. Sort of an idiot, if I would just be honest. I non-consented to God's consent. And instead of leaving me in it, he was present in the suffering, always providing a way for a better story. And what can't I be inspired to do that for others? Uh, next slide. Let's say, let's say it this way. Do we believe or do we really care? There's a giant gap between belief and surrendering to God's moral will and actually caring about what God cares about, which is other people. But they say that all great teachers should be able to summarize big concepts with one sentence. So here's the one sentence that I know social scientists tell me you're gonna forget 96% of everything I say by Wednesday. I find that depressing because I worked hard on this. Nonetheless, I get it. There's nothing I can do about that. But you can remember this one question. This is the question I want you to carry with all week, hopefully all month, hopefully all year, and then the rest of your life. And that question is this, plant or people? Plant or people? Temporary, permanent, light or heavy? Plant or people? Because to be a well-based place and not a fence-based place, we have to handle what's actually important to us. Can we have the grace to enjoy our plants but never at the expense of people? And can we have our meaningful experiences with God and surrender and consent to his moral will, but always remember the action is out there. I hope Jesus got bigger for you tonight. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your night. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.